Texas Business Minds, a presentation of the Texas Business Journals. Brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. In this episode, Dallas Business Journal Managing Editor Rob Schneider welcomes Dennis McQuiston to discuss corporate governance. Dennis McQuiston is Professor Emeritus at the University of Texas at Dallas and former Executive Director for the Institute for Excellence in Corporate Governance at the Nabeen Jindal School of Management. He was honored as a Lifetime Achievement Award winner for the 2022 Outstanding Directors Awards for Excellence in Government Advocacy. Dennis is also the host of the award-winning McQuiston television program on PBS, filmed in Texas and syndicated weekly throughout the U.S. We talked to Dennis last month about board governance and board service. Here are some of the highlights. What role does a board play in helping drive a corporate social purpose? Well, uh, CSR, uh, corporate social responsibility, is what people talk about these days. I'm not a big proponent of CSR either. Sorry about that. The whole argument about what a corporation should do has been one of the big items in the last 50 years. Uh, One of my favorite economist, the late Milton Friedman, famously said back in 1970 that the purpose of a corporation is to maximize shareholder value. And that was pretty much the mantra for a long, long time. And a lot of people still say that that is the case. Uh, I'm not 100% in tune with that, but I don't go to corporate social responsibility. If you read the definition of CSR in some places, it basically says that a corporation should, quote, give back to the community or give back to the country. Mm-hmm. Corporations don't take from, so they don't give back if you don't take from. It is a voluntary transaction. The only group that takes from is the government. And so corporations and small businesses of all types and the Dallas Business Journal do things because people want to do business with you. Now, to the extent that you are able to accomplish your corporate objectives, and those objectives may be not not just the bottom line, by the way, then uh, social responsibility will be an effect of what you're doing well, not the cause of it. CSR has, to a large extent, gone away and been replaced by ESG, Mm -hmm. environmental, social, and governance issues. And ESG in, in and of itself is not a bad thing either. But keep in mind that there are activists and there are governments who believe that a corporation should be run to be a good corporate citizen and to protect the environment. And if you don't ever make any money, it's no big deal. They don't understand anything about if you don't make any money, you're toast, you know, so that's that's a problem with ESG. Now, when it comes to uh, ESG, the government and BlackRock, as an example, which is the biggest money manager in the world, uh, has taken a position on diversity and on inclusion and on CSR and on ESG over the years. That's a big change over the last 50 years. Milton Friedman would roll over in his grave today if he knew that. But where I'm coming from, and I think where the Institute for Excellence in Corporate Governance has come from as we all, our board and our our group came together, and more in the area of what we would call stakeholder capitalism as opposed to shareholder capitalism. 
Now, I'm not going to go into all of that in depth, Rob, but let's just say that a guy named Ed Freeman came up with something called stakeholder capitalism maybe 40 years ago. It's controversial, too. There are a lot of people who are pure bottom line folks who said you shouldn't stakeholders. And what I'm talking here, employees, customers, uh, obviously suppliers, the community, all the people we would include in CSR, actually. Uh, those people are extremely important, we think. And we also think that it is possible to serve all those stakeholders while also maximizing the bottom line for shareholders as well. It's not a question of a trade-off, which is what you'd like to hear when you talk to these activists. Well, you shouldn't do that, you ought to do that. No, no. If we do these other things right, Rob, it will also inure to the bottom line for the shareholders as well. And we think that's possible for well-run companies. What about a diversity of perspectives on a board and how important is that for a well-run board? Well, you have put your finger on the most important diverse thing, and that's diversity of perspectives, diversity of opinions, diversity of thinking, as a matter of fact. And often, by the way, that goes hand in hand with the other kinds of diversity as well, because that's where you get the diversity of thought. But don't give me somebody who looks like this or looks like that or is this color or that sex or whatever. Give me the diversity of opinion and thought and knowledge that it takes to run the business well. Right. And so that's the real key to, uh, I think, a good corporate governance. The organization I was working with over in Georgia, I had their board there and there was one woman on a 12 person board. She was 75 and about to roll off because that was the time to retire. And so they were asking me to take them through a process of figuring out who to put on this board because board succession was their big issue. One of their thoughts that they wanted to work, wanted me to work through with them was board succession. And so she said, you know, we're, I'm about to retire at 75 and we're trying to figure out what we need to put on this board. And they had all of their products, they were in the consumer products business, they had all of their products lined up behind the U-shaped thing. And I was looking at the products back there and I said, let me ask you a question. What percentage of those products are bought by women? They said 85%. I just paused and I looked at them. And finally, it dawned upon all of these men and one woman that maybe having a bunch of women on a board in which women buy 85% of their products might be a good idea. Hello, you know, I mean, that shouldn't take a genius to figure that out. But right. that's what, that's the kind of thing that it's not just, and then give you, I'll give you one more example. Mm -hmm. I was doing some work with an oil and gas company in Houston actually evaluating their board. We went through a, a long process of evaluating the board. And I, I interviewed all the board members in the Republican Trading Company, of course. And as I talked to them, I looked at what they had done about their fellow board members. They had two women on the board of this oil and gas company. And I said to one of the guys who happened to be the chairman of the audit committee and happened to be a black CPA, chairman of the audit committee, and I said, among other things in the conversation, who's the weakest link on your board? He said, so-and-so, one of these women. And I'd heard that from the other people too, by the way, except for that woman who thought she was a great board member. Anyway, uh, I said, well, what's the deal? Why is she on the board? She, he said, because she's a woman. 
Now, this is a black gentleman telling me that the weakest board member they have is this woman, and she was put on the board because she's a woman and hadn't learned in the, in the eight years she'd been on the board how to be an effective board member yet. That's not right. Ideally, how does a board manage leadership succession planning? And what advice would you have for board chairs on this topic? It is one of the issues that only the board can do. It is one of the board's most, if not the most important decision and the most important thing that they have to do is management succession. And one of the uh, great board members that I interviewed years ago said, I asked him, I said, when do, when do you guys start the leadership succession process? He said, the day we hire the new CEO. And I think that's right. So the board can only choose a new CEO and the process needs to start immediately for a couple reasons. First, there are two basic ways that succession has to happen. One, unexpectedly, if they die, as an example, automobile, the beer truck thing that we, right. we laugh about, but it happens, unfortunately, right. or they get hired away someplace else, as an example. Mm -hmm. So that's the unplanned for uh, succession, but that process has to be in place. That the board needs to know right now who would be chosen if they got that call, as, as a friend of mine did when the CEO went down in the plane crash over the Rockies and the CEO went down with the CFO in the plane as well. What are you going to do right now? Right. Process that usually works, of course, as you very well know, Rob, is is let's just say the managed retirement thing uh, right. over a period of time. And so you've got a chance then to evaluate the entire leadership team, right. which is a, a difficult task in itself. And you want the CEO's feedback, of course, but you don't want that CEO choosing his or her successor. That's not his or her job to do that. And so in this case, you sort of look at when do you think you might want to retire or step away from this job? It doesn't matter if they're actually retiring, but leaving this job. And then you plan for a, a succession over that period of time. One of the things that I think you are gonna ask about, and I'm gonna jump into it now is, mm -hmm. how does a board figure out who those prospects are in the organization right. or whether you need to go outside? So let's just say the research is clear that whenever possible, getting a person from the organization is the best thing to do. It's the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. So then the board then needs to meet those prospects or other top managers, and they do. They meet them by site visits. They come in and make presentations to the board. Right. They have dinner with the board before the board meetings, et cetera. Uh, they participate in strategic planning sessions. They uh, boards can actually go in and visit with particular thing uh, people in their, in many cases, geography. They may have to go to Europe or Japan or Asia to do that. And so that is a process that is sort of constantly taking place. It's not a question of just checking that box or this box, but the board looks at it. And then once a year, it's typically the way it's done, once a year, the board has on its agenda an item that says succession planning discussion. And that discussion may happen for 15 minutes, may happen for two hours, right. depending on the situation. But it's got to be scheduled 
and talked about on a regular basis and a written succession plan needs to be in place. Now, you don't have to publish the written succession plan, right. but at least the chairman and others need to know what that is. Was that person on the board before their CEO? Typically not, mm -hmm. typically not, but you raise an interesting question. Yeah. How many times have you seen in the last few years where there is an unexpected exit, maybe it's through death, maybe it's through firing, et cetera, and which some board member ends up being the successor? Right. That happens a lot, and it happens for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, they haven't done a good job of leadership succession <laughs> to start with. But secondly, around the table of publicly traded companies are a lot of very talented individuals. And so many of them have the skill sets already who could step in. And if it's a, a short-term thing that happens, it's sort of easier in some ways to do that at least on an interim basis. And then if it's working, you leave it that way. But that gives uh, the board time then to do the leadership process that it needs to do. And then the other person steps away, let's say in six months or a year or two years or something like that. So that will work. So how does a board pay attention to the culture of the organization and understand what other adjustments may need to be made? I can't tell you, Rob, how often culture is talked about in boardrooms today. I've seen this really sort of rise to the top in the last, I'm going to say 10, 15 years. Prior to that time, uh, you know, culture was something in a Petri dish or something. I mean, nobody talked about culture. We all knew there was one, but right. don't get me wrong. But the idea of whether it was positive or negative or just nothing, whether the culture could be designed, nurtured, or changed, as you, as you mentioned as well, and how that culture works, particularly with that stakeholder known as the employee. Mm -hmm. In today's world, I mean, I've dealt with these graduates in my professional career, and they are looking not just for the best pay they can get, yeah, that's important, but they're looking for a place where they can feel valued, where they can feel they're making a contribution, where they have a chance to grow in an organization, and an organization that the that has a good reputation as opposed to some of the banks in Wall Street, which I won't mention, but nevertheless, that's important to the employees. It's also important to the customers as well. They don't wanna feel like they're being ripped off all the time. And so the culture has to be managed. The board, in many cases, drives the culture. If it doesn't drive the culture, it is measuring that culture at, at least on an annual culture survey. And I got to tell you that having been on one in, board in particular where the CEO, the founder, the chairman, I should say, was telling us what the culture is. And then we did a culture survey. Oh, my God. And of course, he got a little defensive. Well, they, they really don't feel that way. Oh, really? Really? Right. You know? So you get it from outside and you can also do surveys of your customers, as a matter of fact, and even the competition to find out what that culture is. Because if it's toxic, you're looking at a bad event, just a question of when it happens. Dennis McQuistion joining us. In our next segment, he addresses how a board and its leaders can stay accountable. When Texas Business Minds continues.
At Texas Mutual Insurance Company, we celebrate the workers who keep your business growing strong. They're a vital part of our community, and we're proud to be on the job with 1.5 million of them every day. More at TexasMutual.com slash on the job. Continuing our conversation as Dallas Business Journal Managing Editor Rob Schneider welcomes Dennis McQuistion. So beyond strategy, effective governments maintains an organization's stellar reputation internally and externally. How does a board hold itself in the organization's leaders accountable to uphold that reputation? Well, it's a good question. Um, unfortunately, in today's big businesses, Rob, I mean, you guys are right there on the front lines all the time. I don't have to tell you the number of stories that you have to write about things happening in corporations that are either illegal, unethical, or just plain stupid, Mm -hmm. okay? Now, a board has some major responsibilities here. First of all, you've got the written code of conduct. Enron had a 64-page code of conduct. I read the 64 pages that Enron had. I also interviewed the CEO of Enron, Jeff Skilling, who been out of jail now the last couple of years, but he spent some time there. Andy Fastow I've interviewed. Andy Fastow was the CFO. And Andy Fastow, by the way, told me and the Institute for Excellence in Corporate Governance, when I asked him about culture, he said the culture was awful and I'm the one responsible for the culture. Now that's a pretty sad situation, but here's the other thing he said, and this comes up at the board. When Andy Fastow talked to our group at the University of Texas at Dallas, he held up his prison card and his CFO of the Year Award from CFO Magazine. And he said, I got both of these from doing the same thing. He said, when I told the board what I could do, how I could make this thing happen, how I could turn effectively debt into operating cash flow, the board said, go get them, Andy, go get them. Turns out that was uh, bogus, illegal. He ended up, his wife ended up going to jail too, as I recall. So the board has the ultimate responsibility. And if something bad happens, you don't dance around it. You see today, a lot of people getting fired for, let's just say, um, non-consensual or even, or even today, mostly consensual sexual affairs and that sort of thing. That almost never happened. But worse than that, I think, is the illegal stuff, the unethical stuff that happens on Wall Street the whole time. I'm going to mention one Wall Street bank, Goldman Sachs, and this is in the record. It's not anything I'm telling you, it's not the record. They have paid billions of dollars in fines. That was so bad at that culture. One of their guys wrote a book about it, you may recall, that one of their directors, who I also interviewed, by the way, one of their directors was given a committee chair to try to fix their culture, and he had 13 specific items that needed to be done to fix their culture. So I don't think it's possible to fix it, but nevertheless, that's how important the board is in trying to make sure that the reputation, whatever it is these days, stays intact. Now, one last thing. Mm -hmm. One of my best buddies is Marianne Jennings, and she is uh, professor Emeritus, Arizona State. She is the ethics person in the country, in my opinion. 
She has a list of all the billions these companies have paid in fines, uh, illegal stuff. Sometimes it was, um, we don't agree that there's a problem, but we're going to pay the fine anyway. Right. I mean, it's billions and billions. And in some cases today, reputation, frankly, doesn't matter. If you've got the access to the money, the access to the power, to hell with your reputation. That is not a board I'd like to sit on, but there are a lot of high-flying CEOs sitting on those boards, plus a few Russian oligarchs. It's often been said that risk often powers performance. How does a board assess risk reward scenarios for bold organizational objectives? Well, it's a great question too, um, because as the old saying goes, there is no reward without risk, no question about it. Uh, we are in the business of taking risk. I, as you know, came out of the banking business and, and the risk involved in the banking side. I, I heard every story you could possibly imagine for people trying to get my depositors money. But we, we're in the risk business, particularly in banking and insurance, but in any kind of organization, you take a risk with the hope of having a significant reward or at least being able to stay in business as the case may be. And so um, what happens there is that there's typically a presentation made and I'm gonna to get to investment bankers in just a second, but let's say the presentation is made by uh, the CEO and members of his or her top management team. If they're doing it right, they will show you not only the positives, but the negatives that could happen. And in fact, in some uh, boards these days, I love this, they will actually have someone come in, either someone in management or some of the board members or, or somebody else from outside a consultant come in and, and take the negative side of this decision. In other words, they're just saying, listen, this is crazy as heck. We're sure we can make a lot of money in Russia, but think about this. Think about a guy named Putin. Think about this. Think about that. Think about the ruble. Think. So you'd have at least the ability to see both sides to weigh the risk against the rewards. And that's what a board needs. Now, the biggest challenge that I have seen and still happens is the risk of making a major acquisition or a merger of equals, it doesn't happen, but they're acquisitions. Mm -hmm. So according to some, 70 to 90% of all acquisition merger type things don't work. Don't work. So wouldn't you think that anything that's a big, big decision, even betting the company on it in some cases, would have the kind of uh, robust investigation that I'm talking about, but often it doesn't because of ego, particularly the ego of the CEO, and because who's driving this? Investment bankers who are trying to make a fee. They said, I can, I can sell this company to you over here. They're going to make fees here, fees there, fees every place, and it doesn't matter to them about the risk and rewards because once the transaction is closed, money is in the bank. And that's where I think the really the big risk is and where the big rewards are typically not there. What's the biggest change in governance over your career? Well, I think the biggest change is that today's board member, there are some exceptions, but in general today, the ones that we've seen in the Institute, the ones in the National Association of Corporate Directors and other, there's a private directors association now, uh, organizations like that are, are now educating board members 
to what their real duties are, not just their fiduciary responsibilities of care and loyalty, but also what a good board member is supposed to do. In the past, it was a good old boys club, and it was all boys, by the way, a good old boys club. You sit on my board, I'll sit on your board, etc. And it was don't rock the boat. That is not the way it is in most boardrooms today. And part of that is because of inclusion and diversity, which is a good part of that, by the way. But part of it is just board members knowing how important their role is. And they're going to be there for some time, whereas they may see two or three CEOs over their board term. And so they recognize that the responsibility is theirs, not just legally, but this is the kind of action that they need to take. Because you got cyber risk, we didn't even talk about that. That's a huge issue today. And so risk management, um, making sure you've got the right person and people in place, the, 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 you know, the best decision that you'll ever make is a good CEO, uh, obviously. And so those things are very important. And how it's done today, the board members are much more qualified and they are much more aware of what their responsibilities are and they will step up. Thanks to Lifetime Achievement Award winner Dennis McQuiston for joining us. And thank you for downloading Texas Business Minds, presented by the Texas Business Journals and brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas.